Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for the Sabbath. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be here with us. Guide each one of us. Lord, you know the future for every person here. And I know you have a plan for them to find the right person to get married or to however they serve you, to glorify you and to live a joyful and rich and fulfilling life. So I pray that you will guide each person here and help us to love you more and to love others too. Amen. Amen. The Lifetime Laptop Shop. Some of you probably heard that title and said, what is she going to talk about? What I'm talking about tonight, today is about principles of how to choose a life partner. Now, remember, I said principles. What word did I say? Principles. principles. Thank you. So when I talk about principles, that's not the same thing as a recipe, right? When you follow a recipe, now I'm bad at following recipes anyway. Recipes are, to me, general suggestions. So I read the recipe and I go, ooh, I could add this, and I don't like that. And so... Uh, recipes don't always work that great in my kitchen, but that's okay because my family is a captive audience. They have to eat them anyway. <laughs> However, you really don't want to be a captive when it comes to getting married. And it's kind of difficult sometimes because people really want a recipe. They want to be sure they're not going to end up with a bad marriage. And unfortunately, recipes just don't happen. I don't find anywhere in the Bible or Spirit of Prophecy or anything where you kind of get a recipe that if you just follow this, then God will give you what you want. Nowhere does God promise if you put in the right amount of change and push the right buttons, your future partner will pop out of the vending machine and be perfect for you, just what you ordered, right? That's not anywhere in the promises of God. However, I do believe there are principles that God wants to use to guide us. So I'm going to start out with an allegory here about dating, something that I thought through one day as I was watching the way that people date. Um, this story is about a Christmas tree, right? So one night a young man had a dream. In his dream he found himself in this huge department store, but the store was empty except for this magnificent Christmas tree. Now, I'm sure you guys are all paranoid of the thought of starting out with Christmas decorations right now because it's only October. Bear with me anyway. It's a Christmas story. So here he is looking at this massive tree and he says, what am I doing here? Why is it Christmas in October, right? He goes over to this brilliant gold sign beside the tree and it says Lifetime Laptop Shop. And he says, oh wow, Lifetime Laptop Shop. What is this? In flaming letters, it says, in this store, you will choose your lifetime laptop. Barring extraordinary circumstances, this laptop will be your only laptop for the rest of your life. Don't worry, these are not traditional laptops. While it may accumulate somewhere over time, your laptop will automatically download new applications and software to update itself. But remember, every laptop has limited capabilities in some areas and will likely only download software compatible with its design. This laptop will be an intimate part of every area of the rest of your life. Above all, you must choose your original model carefully. To a significant degree, this choice will determine your entire future happiness and your accomplishments from this day forward. For additional vital information on the process of selection, please consult a manual below. So the man looked right below this, and sure enough, there was a stack of free manuals. So he picked one up and said, hmm, this looks good. Started opening it, would you like some assistance? A guide came over to him. He had on his name tag, guide, and he's wearing a white robe. He said, yeah, I'd like some help. For starters, I'm wondering what's going on here. He looked over at the Christmas tree, and under the Christmas tree, a bunch of people had arrived, and they were all pawing through the packages underneath the tree. So he said, what are they doing? So the guide said to them, well, they're choosing their lifetime laptops. And just then, a guy jumped out of the stack and said, I found it, and raced off toward the checkout. And he said, wait, what's that guy doing? And the guide said, well, he just chose his lifetime laptop. And he said, well, wait, how did he choose it? And the guide said, he liked the wrapping paper. He said, oh, okay. 
He said, you, you, you got to be kidding. Doesn't he understand this process? The guide said, well, he, he saw the sign, if that's what you're asking. He knows about the process. He knows that we have a manual here. I tried to hand him one, but he just threw it aside and took off toward the pile. Okay. He said, well, so what's going to happen? He said, well, unfortunately, the guide said, this is going to be the death of many of his dreams and the death of my dreams for him. Another man waited out of the mess right then. He said, I'm sick of looking. This one looks really good. I just want it. Excuse me, the guide said, but that one is happiness driven. And you're not going to really enjoy it. He said, no, that happiness driven sounds great to me, the man said, and stormed off toward the, the checkout. I want to be happy. Happiness is the main thing I want. So now the man said to the clerk, well, so what's happening with that? Why is it happiness driven? What does that mean? He said, well, there are two different kinds of laptops, happiness driven and holiness driven. If you have a happiness driven one, the happiness driven one is going to do primarily whatever it wants to do. Okay, well, what's the holiness driven one? Holiness driven ones are ones that do what they are designed to do. Their interaction is the opposite. They're designed so that your goal in life and in computer shopping should be to glorify God and fulfill his purpose. So you can't just do whatever you want with a holiness-driven computer. You have to choose what to do based on what it's designed to do and what you're called to do. You have to agree to live your life and use your laptop to please its designer, not just yourself. Okay, the guy said, so either it will never satisfy me or I can't please myself. That's pretty much it, said the guide. Oh, that doesn't sound very good. Just then, a guy waited out with another laptop and said, I want to take this one and date it. Wait, can he do that, said the guy to the guide. And the guide said, oh yeah, most people do. Dating the computer means they can take it home for a little while. They can access some of the functions, but not others. If they do access the others, it releases a virus. Oh no, he said, what does the virus do? The virus rips through the hard drive, it attacks the love, the respect, and the security, it blocks the research process, and it handicaps the user's judgment. Whoa, he said, nobody does that, right? Well, said the guide, unfortunately most do. He said, but can the virus be reversed? Well, sometimes with a laptop reboot, sometimes you have to send it back to the manufacturer for a while. Sometimes it's irreversible and there are always losses. And the more they defy the covenant, the more damage is done, the less they care. That's crazy, said the guy. Yes, but it doesn't really matter to them. That's someday, you see. This is right now. They want what they want right now when they want it. They don't want to surrender their computer back to the designer for any period of time. Surrender, the guide said, is actually the, the hardest part of the process. Well, can they just return it afterward and get another one, asked the guy. Yes, but they lose everything. Pictures, work, their whole lives are sometimes locked into that computer by the time they return it after dating. So many people decide they don't want to lose all of that stuff. They decide to keep the computer they've dated, even though there's a price. And that price can be very high. Wow, said the man. So they can date it if they're very careful. He said, yes, they, if they don't research before dating the computer, though, they won't know what it's available to do. Some great computers are never going to be capable of doing what this specific user needs. There are thousands of unique applications, backgrounds, options. Many of them are available on only a few computers. But people don't care, said the guide. Unfortunately, they just want a nice laptop fast. They often just pick one because the wrapping paper looks great. It was on top of the pile. They, they pick the color. They say, oh, this is a pink one. They don't even care about the rest of it. They research later because they just can't keep their hands off. It's like they're addicted. Later they find out about the capabilities and the design, but they've already taken it home. Wow, said the guy, that's really terrible. How do they get wrapped this way? Can't, can't you figure out something from the wrapping? Well, you can, you can actually figure out very little from the wrapping, said the guide, and sometimes the most attractively wrapped packages have the least options. 
But if all you're interested in is appearance instead of holiness-driven software, it'll come at a price. Often the users only, dis only discover the limitations too late, and they've already invested so much they just can't bear to return it. Wow, the man said, looking back at this pile of packages with everybody just rummaging through them like crazy. He said, look, they're throwing laptops everywhere. Don't they care what they're doing to them? Look. He said, yeah, it's crazy, the guide answered. It's really unfortunate. And the worst part is I would help them carefully do the research if they would let me. If they would allow me to help them through the process, I know every one of these laptops. I'm the one who made every single one of them. And I've designed each one. I'll help them to choose one that will do the things that they want and that will be able to access all the options that they need. But unfortunately, almost nobody will let me help with that process. And of course, a person can survive with almost any laptop. They have a laptop, they can do the things that they need to do, but they miss out on so much when they just snatch one. I designed each one for a purpose, you see. I'm continually updating each one, but if the interactions between the user and the computer become happiness-driven, unfortunately, they handicap that constant redesign process. Not one of them will be utilized correctly or fulfill its purpose if they use it in a happiness-driven way. So the guy said, let me understand this correctly. If I want to be happy and satisfied with my lifetime laptop, ideally, I have to let you help me research and choose one. Then I practice guided interaction with it for a while, and I follow the rules right here in the manual. He held up his manual. Then, if I do all of those things, I safeguard the love, respect, and security. And if I avoid the off-limits parts of the, the dating, during the dating time, if I avoid the stuff that's off-limits, that'll enrich the love, the respect, and the security. Yes, said the guide, and if you wait and you access those at the right time with my permission, the previously forbidden options provide tremendous happiness and fulfillment. Trust me, follow the process toward ownership that I've laid out. Wow, the man said. He set down the manual and he looked at the, the guide and he said, please, guide me. I surrender this process to you. I realize looking at the way these people are handling it, I don't want to damage all these other people's laptops. I don't want to damage mine. I want to choose one that you can help me to choose. Please help me. Show me how to be holiness driven, not happiness driven. I surrender this process to you. Now, what do I need to do? And the master smiled and said, you just did what you need to do. Now, can you see the applications in this story? What, what stuck out to you in this process? Have you seen people rummaging around like crazy through the laptops, just grabbing whatever is closest? Vesper states. Vesper states, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My husband preaches the truth. <laughs> he didn't find me on a Vesper's date. We'll talk about that later. I'm going to talk with you about some steps to follow in choosing. Now remember, we, we mentioned earlier, but I think it's really worth mentioning again, a lot of people really like this idea that if you just pray hard enough and you restrain yourself and do everything right, that God's going to keep you from getting your heart broken. That you'll just find the person, you'll pray about it, God will make a, a lovely light shine down upon the right one, and you'll pick that person out. And you might as well pick a wedding date at that point because God has shown you that you should be together and that means you're going to live happily ever after, right? I believe that's very dangerous. My husband's going to talk a little bit more about the dangers of that approach later. But I want you to remember, this is not a recipe, okay? If you follow God's plan, realize people are still people. They're sinners. We change. We die. We lie. Sometimes you can, you can go through a whole process sincerely praying and dating this person and thinking that God is leading you together and still end up in a very bad situation. If you do, God has backup plans to help you to work through that and to find help and healing in his church and through accountability and through counseling and things like that. But I still believe that God does work powerfully to lead in the process of choosing a mate. I told the Lord before I met my husband, I said, if there is somebody out there, and I'm pretty sure there's not because I couldn't imagine myself walking down the aisle in the white dress. You know, girls, how this is, right? You go to the weddings and you're just like, that could never possibly happen to me, 
right? That's what I felt, and it did happen. So miracles happen. But I, I told the Lord, if there is anybody out there that I could possibly marry, then I just want you to help me to choose the best one, the one that if I marry him, there will be the most people in heaven because we married each other. Even if there, maybe there are five different guys that I could marry, and any one of them, we'd have a beautiful, rich, fulfilling marriage. I want that one, the one that will be the best soul-winning team with me so there will be the most people in heaven. And I definitely believe that God answered that prayer and married me to the best man in the world. But you know, if I had married somebody who hadn't been the best person in the world for me, if he and I had both been willing to surrender everything to the Lord, God would still have been able to make a beautiful marriage out of our relationship. So I want you to realize God helps us follow principles. Some people get so discouraged after they get married and they feel like, wait, I didn't marry the right one. We have these conflicts. We have these problems. Or even, I know I didn't follow God's process. I don't want you to be discouraged if you're in that situation because God still leads people. He doesn't say, well, if you made a mistake, rewind, get out of that marriage. He says, let's keep going forward and grow in love and in grace toward one another. Love is risky. That's an important thing for us to realize. Did God have a guarantee that it would all work out great when he created us? When he chose to love us, he took the risk of being hurt. And in a sinful world, when we choose to love, we take the risk of being hurt too. In fact, it's a guarantee. If you marry that person, even if they die the next day, it's still going to hurt, right? And if they don't die, they're going to hurt you in other ways because people misunderstand each other, people miscommunicate, people are selfish. So love is risky and marriage is risky. But when we share these principles, I think that following them will dramatically increase your risk of success. Because, you know, as much as you want to have a happy marriage, how many people in here want to have a happy marriage? All right, but your parents did too. And a lot of them didn't end up having happy marriages, right? If you want to have a happy marriage, just take comfort in the fact that God wants you to have a happy marriage much more than you do. He wants you to have a beautiful, rich, fulfilling relationship that teaches you to love Him and to love others. But nowadays, we're living in a culture in which marriage is a very happiness-driven concept. And we're living in an age of wedding and marriage mania. Pinterest, right? Eight things you need to have in common for someone to be your soulmate. I'm not recommending that. I don't know what it's in there. But I just put it up there as an illustration. You know, we live in Pinterest land. Everybody's got four million ideas of what they want their marriage to be like and what they want their wedding to be like and all of that. And marketers know what we're interested in, don't they? So we have wedding everything on the market and anything that you want to dream about, you can dream about and look it up on Pinterest and fantasize. You know, we all want the happily ever after marriage and some people get it. So all of us are going, wow, maybe I'll be the one that gets lucky. Maybe I'll be the one who finds that. You know, guys, look around. The women around you have probably mostly already chosen their bridesmaids, right? Come on, women. How many of you know some of your bridesmaids? They change. If you only get married five years from now, it'll probably switch out a little bit. You'll add some new ones, you know, but, but we're picking our bridesmaids, guys. Women in this room looked at that picture and thought, that's a good color scheme. <laughs> or, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm going to go for the brighter tones. Or I've already chosen. How many of you have already chosen your wedding colors? Okay, there we go. I'm telling you, we think about our weddings. And we hope that our marriages will be good. But often people put a lot more planning into their wedding than they do into their marriage with disastrous results. Researchers tracked more than 24,000 people from 1984 to 1995, asking participants every year to rate their overall life satisfaction from zero, totally unhappy, to 10, totally happy. The average boost from marriage as these people got married was small, one-tenth of one point on the scale. In other words, they took single people and tracked them through these years as one by one they tied the knot and they watched to see how people rated their happiness. And you know what they found? People who were basically unhappy before marriage, if they rated themselves at a three, 
then they would have a little blip of happiness around the wedding planning and honeymoon, and then they would go right back to being about a three. Or worse. And then there were people who were a nine, and they would go along, yay, happy, 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 and have a 9.5, and then they would go back to being about a nine. People who were basically happy before marriage remained basically happy after marriage. People who were basically unhappy before marriage remained basically unhappy after marriage. And tragically, many people who get married when they're basically unhappy end up even more unhappy after marriage because before marriage, at least they had the hope, someday I'm going to find my dream person. But once they're married and they're like, and now I'm stuck with this person who's not my dream person. If only I could have that one or that one or anyone except this jerk, right? So marriage doesn't actually make you happier statistically. It may make you live longer, especially if you're a guy and there are things like that. But the, the end result of the research was people who get married and stay married are more satisfied than average long before the marriage has occurred. Um, however, even though people know things like that, we all know married people and we don't find that they're off the charts happier, even if everything that they post on social media makes it look like they are. Um, but the pursuit of marriage often leads people to greater unhappiness. 50% of all teenage relationships break up within a very short period of time, and 90% of all teenage relationships will end in a breakup. And even if they don't end in a breakup before marriage, they're much, much more likely to end in divorce if they started in the teenage years. More than 50% of all marriages started between the ages of 20 and 25 eventually end in divorce, according to the National Center for Health Statistics. If you are under the age of 18 when you get married, then your divorce will likely happen in the first 10 years of marriage. If you decide on cohabitation instead of marriage, in other words, if you live together for a while before you get married, your odds are even worse, up to an 80% chance of a breakup. So if you try cohabiting, it's likely not going to work well. Now, think about that for a minute. Let's say that you were planning to go on a vacation. You're so excited. You've bought the tickets. You're headed for, I don't know, where should we go? Hawaii, Honduras. All right, we'll do Hawaii. Off we go to Hawaii. We're so excited. We've been planning this for months. We packed all our favorite clothes. We sacrificed to buy some cool bathing suit that we think won't make us look too bad on the beach, right? So we get into the airplane, and just before we take off, we're on the runway. We've got our seatbelts fastened, and the pilot comes on the, the loudspeaker and says, we just want you to know we're having some engine problems, but we've decided to go ahead and take the flight anyway. And according to our mechanics, we have at least a 50% chance of making it to Hawaii without crashing. So we're going to go ahead and take off, but we're giving you the option to get off the plane if you want. Are you headed for Hawaii? All of a sudden, you're not, right? All of a sudden, it sounds great to sit by the pool in Birmingham for a week. In comparison, right? So if this were a plane ride, none of us would be doing it, right? But instead, it's a marriage. And astonishingly, people are so much more willing to risk sacrificing essentially the rest of their lives for the shot at being able to be married. Roger and Becky Tarabasi wrote about working with dating and engaged couples. It's like working with people on drugs. Natural chemicals such as dopamine, endorphins, serotonin, and oxytocin can cause the same reaction as an illicit drug. Dating and engaged couples often find themselves in a chemically induced condition. They have the uncanny ability to focus on their partner's positive strengths and traits while rarely noticing the reality of their partner's weaknesses. How many of you have ever tried to persuade somebody who's in a bad relationship that they're in a bad relationship? Have you done this? And then you decided to just go do something useful like beat your head against a brick wall, right? Because it's less frustrating. Yeah. People who are in this dopamine-induced condition are just so desperate to continue this relationship that they can't see the stuff that's glaringly obvious sometimes. Even if they just dated somebody just like this last year and you watch the whole thing fall apart and you're like, but can't you see how she's doing exactly the same, that your, same things your ex did? And they're like, yeah, but you don't understand. Her heart is so beautiful. Whatever. Anyway, people keep doing this. His potential. I just see his potential. Oh, 
if I had a dollar for every time I've had somebody tell me that this person had potential. Don't marry potential. There you go. Okay, end of that story. Studies suggest that romantic attachment is more powerful than the sex drive. Neurologically speaking, that's in your brain, it's easier to say no to physical sexual passion than it is to regulate the rush of emotional infatuation. By Gary Thomas from The Sacred Search. Now, men don't think that it's only women who read romance novels that fall for this stuff, right? <clears throat> men are attracted to physical appearance more than women are. In general, there's some women that are more into physical appearance. But most psychologists believe that more men than women experience love at first sight. Have you heard some love at first sight stories? They lead to miserably ever after very often, just so you know. Ellen White had something to say about this. She said in Adventist Tome, page 44, marriage in a majority of cases, most marriages, in other words, is a most galling yoke. There are thousands that are mated but not matched. The books of heaven are burdened with the woes, the wickedness, and the abuse that lie hidden under the marriage mantle. Just in case you thought that back in the good old days in the 1800s when they lived on the farm, everything was wonderful, it's only our modern culture, no. As long as you've got sinners getting married, you're going to have problems in marriages. And the fact that people couldn't divorce for whatever reason back then only meant that they stayed in abusive situations often, no matter what happened. How many of you have seen marriage to be a most galling yoke in the lives of your friends or family members? Have you watched that? As a marriage counselor, I see it every week. Terrible stories come to me of how people's lives are being destroyed and unfortunately children often come into that. Why is that? Why is it that people keep doing this to themselves? It's because of love's evil twin, lust. When people fall into relationships instead of intentionally thinking and praying things through, they desire happiness instead of holiness and that that thirst for happiness drives them forward even when they realize that this relationship is not imaging God well. Here are some of the potholes in the road most traveled. Attraction. People make their decision based on attractiveness. The wrapping paper, right? I hate to break it to you, but if you're the most beautiful woman in the room today, 30 years from now, you're not going to be the most beautiful woman in the room anymore. Unless everybody in the room is older than you, right? We just, we do the saggy baggy elephant thing eventually. We all do. So if you choose somebody based on attractiveness, or if you try to get somebody to choose you based on attractiveness, you're going to be in trouble in a few years. Impulsiveness. This one was right here. She sat next to me in Vespers. I just prayed about it and I knew it was providence because I'd asked the Lord that if somebody would sit next to me in Vespers and if she was wearing a red dress, that would be my sign. And so, yes. Impulsiveness. Instead of prayerfully thinking things through. Infatuation or lust. Well, we started making out, and after that, it's just everything she did seemed so perfect. Test drive commitments. Well, I didn't really have anybody in my church at home. There was only one person, and, you know, we'd kind of known each other for a long time, but eventually we started dating just because it was the only person around, and I figured, well, you know, why not? Maybe it'll work out, right? The boy next door? Failed relationship, which often comes after test drive commitment. After your relationship has shattered, then you feel worse than you felt before it started, and then along comes the floating cloud of happy person, right? And along we go into a new failed, re after the failed relationship, we're looking for new excitement and a fast track to feeling better. And ultimately, all of these are rooted in a self-centered focus. We're wanting to find somebody who will make us happy rather than trying to glorify God. Here is a summary of what drives a lot of those things. A life partner is chosen based on attractiveness or circumstances. Well, we were at school together. We, he was the only other person in my class that I liked, whatever. Not character, how much is this person like Jesus? And personality, how much is this person like me? Commitment based on feeling, not choice and conviction. And there are three possible outcomes when you get into a relationship like this. You might end up with happily ever after. Some people do. Some people make the decision for all the wrong reasons. She was pregnant, so we got married, and now we've been married for 40 years, and we're just so happy together. You know, God is a God of redemption. He'll pull things around whenever he can for anyone he can. So sometimes the happily ever after happens. But the more you choose based on these factors, the more likely it is that you'll fall into one of the other two categories. A breakup that's made very, very painful by bonding, 
or a life commitment that's built on a faulty foundation. You know, I dated a guy before my husband. Unbelievable, I know. Why didn't I just wait for him? But along came a guy. He seemed like the most spiritual guy around. He had a nice car. He had a nice job. He seemed like a nice guy. He liked me. I liked him. I was out of college. So was he. Off we went into a wonderful relationship. Except it wasn't. Because I didn't realize, I didn't know him well beforehand. We'd just met a couple months before. I didn't realize that we had massive personality clashes. And our convictions about things like health, like dress, like lifestyle, were just very different. But the more that we dated, and the more these obvious glaring differences came between us, the more I was like, well, we've got to talk about these things. But he's like, no, let's not talk about them right now. Let's just keep dating. Maybe things will go away. Maybe it'll all work out. Let's date for a couple of years. And if we still like each other and everything seems to be fine, then we'll talk about those things. So finally, I sat down with him and I told him, look, here's what's going to happen. It's true. It might all work out. There's a small chance of that. But here are the more likely things. Number one, we'll stay together for those two years. And then at the end of it, when we actually talk about these things, we'll realize this is never going to work out. And then we've blown two years of our lives. And it hurts so much more to break up when we've been together all of that time. And then the other option is that even though we know it's not really working out well, we'll remain committed because we've invested so much and we'll stay together and we'll have a life commitment built on a faulty foundation. So I told him this feeling like, okay, now we'll finally talk through these things. So two weeks later, he broke up with me, which was actually about the best thing that ever happened in my life. But at the time, of course, I felt like my entire life had been ripped apart and I was just completely destroyed. Anyway, so... A lot of bad ideas of how to find somebody to marry. God has a better plan. Let's talk about that, okay? This is a, an idea my husband and I have that we're, we're going to write a book on one of these days when we can finish it. Don't fall in love, crawl in love. Isn't that cute? Our kids were cuter, though. Just saying. <laughs> also, there's no drool there. But anyway, crawling in love. This is an intentional process. Now, my husband's going to be building on some of the things that I'm talking about, but I'm going to give you some basic five steps for how to work through some of your differences and how to choose a spouse in a wise way, in a process. It's not perfect. It's not a recipe. But, you know, most people don't end up with an Isaac and Rebecca situation, right? You just pray and God sends a servant to a faraway country and comes back with a spouse for you and you know this is the one because there aren't any others, right? Maybe that's your dream situation, but most of us would like to have a little more say in that. So I'm going to give you five simple steps that you need to follow. Yes, crawl in love. Crawling in love is intentional. Good point. You know, when you fall in something, it's generally an accident, right? My son fell yesterday against the wall because my sons were wrestling with each other and they like to do that even though I said don't. He fell against the wall and his tooth went all the way through his cheek. Yeah, ouch. That's what happens when you fall. You do not want to fall into love. It is often a disaster. It is even usually a disaster. Instead, when you crawl, you're doing something intentionally. You're slowly, carefully progressing into a relationship with your eyes wide open going carefully. <clears throat> so step one in the process of crawling in love, becoming whole in Christ. Focusing on your relationship with God is the first thing you want to do. When you're trying to get into a relationship that will be the basis of the rest of your life, you're going to be driven to all the wrong things unless you're finding your security in Christ first. With my husband, I didn't meet him until I was 26. At that time, I was fairly certain that I had met all the good guys in the world and none of them were going to be the right one for me. So that was fine. I was going to spend my life single and I'd probably end up as a missionary in some remote jungle corner until I died of a tropical disease, <laughs> which was good. I was ready for that. And then along came the man of my dreams. And we got married a year later when I was 27. Now, to you guys, it might sound like 26. You know, I remember somebody telling me the statistic that the best marriages, the most stable marriages, um, according to research, start when people are between the ages of 28 and 30. And I was like, oh, Lord, please don't make me wait that long. <laughs> so he answered my prayer. I was 27, right? <laughs> Focus on your relationship with God. 
I came to the point where I was so happy and fulfilled in ministry and with a rich friendship network and just rejoicing in the Lord. There were so many more ways that I needed to grow, but I was very happy and content with my walk with God. I built quality same-sex friendships. And you know what? You may not realize it now, but you're laying the groundwork right now for the people who are going to be there for you 20 years from now. The friends that, you know, I've been married now for 16 years, and the people I call on when I'm going through a tough time are typically the people that I've known for 15 to 25 years. Because back then when I was single, I had time to spend time with my friends. We went culportering together. I sold books. I slept on church floors. I went on mission trips. I had so many great opportunities to build rich friendships with wonderful women that are still there in my life. And we've gone through having our kids together, and some of them have gone through divorces or losing their husbands or having health crises. When my husband got sick with hepatitis C and we didn't know if he was going to live, I had this network. You need that community, and it's a priceless investment. I'm glad that I didn't get married younger because I know I wouldn't have had a lot of those experiences, and I wouldn't have built such a rich friendship network. You want to prepare for your life calling. There are lots of people who get married before they prepare for their life calling, but sometimes that means that you're having children and trying to finish your education in the midst of that. I had two master's degrees to finish after I had kids. My husband had a doctorate to finish. Would have been nice if we'd done those things beforehand. We've survived, but you want to get your life calling generally under control and your education. That's ideal to at least get your, yourself going in the right direction. Then when you find somebody else who's going in a similar direction, you know more of where you're going. <clears throat> and then overcome major weaknesses and develop your strengths. This is really important, that you can identify your weaknesses and be able to work on them. If you've got addictions that are lingering and keep on being a chronic problem in your life, you really need to get to the root of those. Allow God to help you to work through those things so that you can come out the other side truly victorious, truly walking with Him as the center of your life. A lot of people go into their search for a spouse like magnets. Have you ever played with magnets? You know what makes magnets pull toward each other, right? Where, where they're unbalanced, you know, you've got your electrons out of whack, whatever. The ma magnet people are unwilling to control themselves or unable. You need to get healthy first. Magnet people are attracted to other magnet people. Unbalanced people are attracted to unbalanced people. Have you ever gone to a party or a gathering where, you know, within 10 minutes you can see this person is one of the most unbalanced people in the room and that person is another one? And sure enough, by the end of the evening, there they are talking to each other, loudly and obnoxiously, right? <laughs> or whatever. People who are unbalanced tend to attract other people who are unbalanced. And Ellen White even says, like attracts like, like appreciates like. Become a balanced person. Magnet people are controlled by an impulsive force they don't understand. They're driven by their imbalances. Now, I'm not saying you need to become perfect before you get married, because none of us are. But you don't want to be driven by something other than a healthy desire to be a companion to someone else. They need to develop a dependence on Christ that brings them to balance and wholeness, or else they will develop a dependence on someone else. Codependency is just another word for idolatry. If you don't base your sense of love and worth on God, you will base it on what someone else thinks of you. And then it, your life will rise and fall on what the other person thinks of you. This is how people get into abusive relationships and they can't get out because they're finding their sense of identity, of worth and love in what the other person thinks of them. Wherever you find your sense of identity, your identity is where you get your sense of value and where you get your sense of love. And these are the two great cravings of the human heart. You know, my husband and I have a bunch of um, seminars that are on Audioverse. If you go to audioverse.org, and I talk more about this in depth, but where you get your identity is where you get your sense of love and worth. And wherever you get your sense of love and worth is what you're going to worship. If you get that from your relationship with this other person, you will be powerless to break it off with them no matter what happens. But if you get your sense of love and worth from your relationship with God, you'll be able to do what you need to do in order to be healthy and safe. God wants you to find his sense of love and worth in what he thinks of you. So you need to spend time before you look for a relationship with somebody else as your significant other, build your relationship with God on quality time and communication. What two things are relationships built on? 
quality time and communication. This is why God gave us a Sabbath, a day to think about creation and redemption, which are the two great foundations of how much we know we're loved and how much we know we're valued. And God gave us a day for quality time and communication with Him and also with others so we can learn to love God and love others as ourselves. Um, thank you. The real solution to loneliness, according to Single and Lonely, Finding the Intimacy You Desire, is the real solution to loneliness lies not in marriage, but in our union with Christ, which leads to our union with one another. We need to love people rather than fearing or using them. Can you see how if you go into a relationship looking for identity, you're going to fear and use the other person? Why are you fearing them? What do you fear if you're basing your sense of love and worth on them? What do you fear? You fear rejection. And what do you use them for? How do you use the other person? If you're getting your sense of love and worth out of them and then they stop making you feel loved and valued, what are you going to do? You're going to look for another? Or you're going to start demanding, you're going to try to squeeze it out of them. Make me feel loved. Make me feel valued. Step Two is observing. Let's say that you have built a reasonable, growing relationship with God. You're not actively searching out addictions. You're dealing with things in, in your life in a healthy way. Now you move on to step two, observing. Now it doesn't mean that you can't observe while you're building your relationship with God. You know what I'm talking about here. But these are layers. As you're in the observing phase, build quality friendships with quality people. Hang around the kind of people you want to marry. If you want to marry somebody wonderful who loves the Lord and is in church every week, you want to spend time loving the Lord, going to church every week, talking about how you love the Lord, right? So maybe you're going on campouts with those kind of people, but you probably don't want to go on the campouts where there's a bunch of beer and partying on Friday night, right? Spend time together in groups with other people who are pursuing the same goals you're pursuing. Don't single the other person out. This is important. Not that singling somebody out is wrong, but that's a different stage. If you start into that stage, that's stage three. You're not in that yet. Stage two is not singling another person out. Don't indicate interest or feel out the other person. If you're not really serious, if you haven't prayerfully gone through looking at this person and saying, you know, I really, I really like this person. I'd like to get to know them better. If you haven't done that yet, then don't have two-hour chats beside the fire after everybody else has gone to bed on your camp out, right? Don't go for long walks under the stars because you're not at that stage yet. If you're at that stage, that's a different stage. But if you're not in the stage where you've chosen this person, this person has not risen as the cream above all the others, then don't do those things yet. Evaluate character and personality. Remember, character is how much is this person like Jesus? Personality is how much is this person like me? There's nothing evil about marrying somebody who has a very different personality than you. But if your idea of a wonderful Saturday night is to bring a whole bunch of friends over and have a raucous party until 11 o'clock at night, and your spouse's idea of a wonderful Saturday night is to have nobody over and have a candlelight bath and read for hours, you're going to have some problems. Neither of those is evil, right? But they're very different. So you want to choose somebody who's reasonably close to you in personality. My husband's going to talk more about that. So evaluate character. How much is this person like Jesus? And personality, how much is this person like me? In this stage, don't make mental and emotional commitment. Don't build intense opposite-sex friendships. People play house all the time. Drives me wild. If, you're, if you have to explain to everybody that you're just friends, maybe you're not. I have a whole seminar called, But We're Just Friends. Go listen to it. If you're not sure if you're really just friends with this person or if you have to keep saying, you know, I'm so glad we're just friends. You're just like a brother to me. Now, please stop. <laughs> Maybe they're not. So don't build intense opposite sex friendships if this is not a person that you're actually interested in. I had a lot of close friends who were guys in college, but the ones that I allowed to be intense friendships were the ones that I lost later on. Those that I kept at a good distance where we were able to be friends with each other. He could date somebody else, I could date somebody else without it being obnoxious or awkward. Those are the friends that I'm still friends with 20 years later. If you value a friend enough that you want to have them a friend for life, don't half date them and pretend like your brother and sister. And prayerfully continue evaluating character and personality and prayerfully surrender to the Lord in this whole process. You know, immaturity is characterized by inability to wait. If you can't wait in that process, if you start jumping the gun trying to pick out somebody really fast, 
Maybe there's something wrong. Um, well, pure love will take God into all its plans and will be in perfect harmony with the Spirit of God. Passion will be headstrong, rash, unreasonable, defiant of all restraint, and will make the object of its choice an idol. From Adventist Home, page 50. And true love is not a strong, fiery, impetuous passion, unlike Hollywood. On the contrary, it is calm and deep in its nature. It looks beyond mere externals and is attracted by qualities alone. It is wise and discriminating, and its devotion is real and abiding. That's Adventist Home, page 51. Avoid serious pitfalls. If you can identify things like lifestyle issues, doctrinal issues, this person doesn't believe the same way you do. I dated somebody who didn't believe you should ever have any assurance of salvation. That isn't where I come from, and I'm really glad that I don't have to wrestle through that with my kids. Integrity issues. If this person's lying to you, my husband will talk more about that later. And personality issues, something serious that's going to come between you. Watch for those things and have a reasonably good idea that this person isn't going to have those issues before you move on to step three. If they've got issues with anger or self-discipline and stuff like that, you want to watch out. Step three is not just friends, or also known as the messy stage. When you're not dating, but you're kind of dating, but you kind of like each other, or you're not sure if the other person likes you yet, or you're just totally trying to figure that out, the messy stage. That is what we call intentional friendship. Maybe the other person's already aware that you're intentionally pursuing them. Maybe they suspect it. Maybe you're going around to their mother and grandparents and all their friends and talking about it, and they're kind of getting the idea. You know what I'm talking about? Whatever. When you're not just friends, you trolling them on Facebook, like everything they say. Yes. Indicate interest slowly in small ways. When you see this person has risen above the rest of the pack, and you're like, wow, this is somebody I really enjoy being around. Make verbal commitment cautiously, if at all, in this stage. You want to wait, slowly go through figuring out how well you get along with each other. Seek wise and confidential counsel. You really don't want this person hearing from everybody and their dog, you know, so-and-so is interested in you. He asked me to ask you. Please, this is not sixth grade. <laughs> now, it is risky to do this gradual process, but the more homework you do ahead of time, the less likely you are to break up later. The less likely you are to break up later is a great thing because the more breakups you have, the more exes you have wandering around in your world. You don't want to run into those people later on. Their kids end up going to college with your kids. It's awkward. Um, you just really don't want that. So as much as possible, you want to try to get to know the person beforehand. Your keys to success in step three are don't let intimacy get ahead of commitment, emotional as well as physical. Don't let commitment get ahead of knowledge and get wise counsel and, of course, prayerfully surrender. Then you have step four which is when you're actually dating. Some people call it courting. I don't care what you call it. Just this is when you both know you're in an official relationship. That's when you make a commitment. You continue focusing on getting to know one another's personality and character. Progress slowly, slowly in emotional intimacy. Do not instantly leap to being wild about one another just because you've now made it public on Facebook. Regulate physical intimacy by counsel and conviction. That doesn't mean if you don't feel guilty about it, it's fine. It means think it through carefully and get wise counsel. You know, you have basically, you have different areas of vulnerability. When you are dating somebody, they shouldn't be somebody you just met. But you don't want to immediately invite them into, let me pour out my guts, all my needs and fears and the deepest and most vulnerable areas of my life because you're still fairly likely to not end up spending your entire life with this person, right? So just go slowly. If you find you can't hold yourself back from pouring your guts out, it may be that you're leaning toward idolatry and looking to this person too quickly. When my husband and I started dating, we made a covenant which we wrote out and I had framed on my wall. I was going to bring it along and I forgot, sorry. But we made a covenant. One of the things that we wrote in there was we choose to avoid other romantic attachments until we are sure of the will of God for our relationship. If after prayerful consideration and counsel, either of us believes God is not leading us together, he or she will be free to share the reasons why in honesty and to terminate this relationship without guilt. We had a lot of different things in there. You can find it in the notes on my Facebook page if you want. 
Um, but it was really helpful for us to kind of have something written out that gave us, this, these are the rules. We're not going to engage physically this way. We're going to make our devotional life a priority, those kinds of things. After your courting, dating, whatever you want to call it, comes engagement. Yay. You have finally a commitment to marriage and a lifetime of ministry together and a definite timeline toward marriage. Please don't be like one of my friends who got engaged and four years later she was still saying, yeah, I'm engaged. And I was like, well, when are you going to get married? Oh, I don't know. We'll get married one of these days unless somebody better comes along. I was like, okay, that's not called engagement. I don't know what you call that, but it's not engagement. So finding a, a person to marry, once you are engaged to each other, that doesn't mean that you're morally obligated to go through with that, that commitment. But what God wants us to do is move steadily intentionally through steps where we think things through. Even when God brought together Rebecca and Isaac, which would arguably be the most miraculous, here's where God just definitely shows you who through a miraculous sign, it still wasn't just a miraculous, she's really beautiful. The servant asked for a character sign. This is a woman who is going to volunteer to do hours of work hauling water for camels of a perfect stranger just because he was there and she believed in hospitality. Why? because hospitality was a critical trait to Abraham's family. So when you are looking for somebody, in your mind you need to have a list of these are the things that matter the most to me. I'm going to spend my life in intentional ministry in this way. Then you find somebody else who loves doing the same kind of intentional ministry. Maybe because you're involved at your church and you're doing that ministry. You're reaching out to homeless people or helping elderly people or you know, whatever it is you're passionate about, starting a youth group, then do that with all your heart and somebody else may come along and join you and that could be a person who could be a great teammate for life in ministry. My husband and I chose a ministry of discipleship before we ever met each other. And when we met one another, we just connected so well on so many levels on the things that we could see that God had called both of us to do with our whole lives. And so it just, fit very naturally. It felt kind of like a hand in a glove that we just fit together so well and I felt like, wow, I've been looking for this guy all my life. And you know, it's so worth it when you find that person who really matches you well. I'm so glad that I didn't settle for the other guys that I dated or that I was interested in because now I look back and I just think, oh Lord, that could have blown my whole life. Let God guide you. In your search for a laptop, don't just rummage through blindly. Don't grab for whatever's closest. Don't judge on the wrapping paper. Choose wisely. Ask for daily guidance from the guide. Let God be the basis of your sense of identity, of your sense of love and worth. If you're waking up every morning or going to bed every night feeling lonely and empty, don't look for a partner because that person is going to easily become your idol. You're going to be like a vine around a fence post. You'll wrap your life around that person instead of around Christ. Let's, let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for the fact that you care about our lives and you care about um, our happiness and you know what we're designed to be. And so, Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray that you will uh, take charge of their lives, take charge of their loneliness, their love and their hope. And Lord, I pray that you will give them the desires of their hearts because you desire for them to be uh, in a fulfilling relationship. And Lord, however you work that out, we pray that you will make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.